know, we've been talking about our operating systems, the core values and guiding values uh, for the Church of Cane Bay, like Charlie said during Discover, you will, you'll understand here what makes this church tick, and we've been spending several weeks talking about that. Uh, you've seen this statement, hopefully over and over again, where you have memorized it. Now, unlike David, who gave you fill-in-the-blanks, I'm not going to give you fill-in-the-blanks. I'm going to give you every word of it, but I want to read it together where it says, our mission is to give every man, woman, and child within our radius multiple to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. Have you ever wondered what our, our circle of accountability looks like? It looks like this. That's us. Google Maps. Don't, don't be impressed with me. I just did Google. That's five miles. Up Jedburg Road, about a couple miles past there, over into the Jedburg area, down into Goose Creek, over near Whitesville. That's it. That's our circle of accountability. And I want to talk about how we do this. What is our output in this circle of accountability? We as a church are commanded, commanded to take responsibility for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the input into this community around us. That's the output so that the result is that every man, woman, and child will respond. That's the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Input, output, response. That's what we're going to talk about today. Input, output, and response. The input is the gospel. And we can say it this way. Whatever we input from this stage, you then take into the community and output it, and they're going to respond to that. Are you with me? Our core value then, the launching pad, what Charlie said, the primary goal of this pulpit and everything we do pushes, it's the gas tank, is the gospel. In week one, he, he chose Ephesians 2, an amazing text to explain our core value, the gospel, what we're going to do in this five-mile radius around this building. So let's review it. It's that you and I were born dead in our trespasses and sin. That's Ephesians chapter 2. That's the, all of the New Testament. It's what the Old Testament points to, that you and I are born dead dead in our trespasses and sin. The Bible says we're born children of wrath. And that we pursue, we chase after, we focus all of our efforts on fulfilling things like lust of the flesh, the mind, the selfishness that we innately have. Anybody ever had to teach their kid how to lie? Anybody have to be taught as a child to be selfish? Why? Because you're born that way. I was born that way. And our lives are destined to stand before a just, right, and holy God. And he will rightly condemn every last one of us to an eternal place called hell. Now we should probably just sit in a five-minute span of silence and let that rattle around in our heads. That you're not good enough to do anything about that. You're dead. End of story. Last chapter written. Period. You're dead. But the good news, this is what the gospel means. The word gospel means good news, is that God, while we were dead in our state of condemnation, 
dead. While we were dead, yet still sinners, Charlie pointed this out, he graciously paid the price for our indebtedness to him. And through grace alone, he made us alive. Through faith alone. Faith in what? Faith in Christ for his glory alone. And then Charlie ended with this saying, and you're, you're now a new creation as a believer in Christ and you have a new purpose in life. And that new purpose is the good works that were prepared for you beforehand. He did this so that we would follow and be like Jesus. That's the input. That's the output. The gospel is preached. A harvest of souls, which is what Will preached on a couple weeks ago. They respond and then they go and preach. And that's the response. So that's the process. Input the gospel. We output and we respond to the gospel. And then we go and we output it again. And it's this reciprocal thing to advance the kingdom of God. If you read ahead two more chapters in Ephesians 4, it will tell you your pastor's responsibility. Joel and Charlie have one responsibility. And that is that they are to equip you and I as the saints, the believers in Christ, for the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry. Diakoneos is the, is the word there for ministry. It means to aid, to bring aid, to be an administrator of aid. The root word there, diakonos, means this, to be about another person's business, to be sent on an errand, to be at the bidding of someone else. And Charlie and Joel are supposed to equip us to go be about the work, to bring aid into a five-mile radius around us, and aid them with what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the process. That's his responsibility. So how do we do that? <clears throat> we get the privilege of administering these things, and we make decisions based on whether it's going to be the best thing or just some good things. And so we have these guiding values. And that's what we've been speaking on these last couple of weeks. Week one was simplicity. Meaning we say no to some really good things. So that we can say yes to the best things. That's Charlie and Joel's responsibility. We'll preach on the harvest. We're going to say yes to the best things. So that we get into the harvest. So that every man, woman, and child. Where they're far from God but close to us. And they hear and see the gospel. And they respond. That's the harvest. And then we partner was the next one, but Irma had a little something to say about that, so we're going to talk about that next week. But then last week, David said we got to be innovative about how we do this in the harvest. He's learning to write a book. He's liking the Dallas Cowboys. Who'd have thunk that? Why? Not so that he can be a heretic. <laughs> Some of y'all got that. Why? So that people far from God but close to Him can see the gospel. And so we have to be innovative. Well, we've got the input of the gospel. We've got the output. But today I want to talk about what the response looks like. And that can be answered in our fifth guiding value statement here at Cane Bay. Which is this. We will be a people of extravagant generosity. We will be a people of extravagant generosity. Now, as soon as I say that word, I know. Or as soon as you hear that word mentioned from the stage of a church, I know the very first word that comes out of your, in your mind is this. Money. 
All the church wants is your... Anybody ever heard that? All the church wants is your money. We were, my wife and I were part of a, a, a large church, and I was doing announcements there one weekend, and the Red Cross was using our sanctuary uh, for a blood drive. And so I was up there doing the announcements and taking up the offering, and, and while they were passing the baskets for the offering, I said, by the way, all the church wants is not only is your money, but we want your blood. <laughs> After, and so it was, a, it was kind of a funny thing, but it's money. And so I want to talk about generosity, but we, we can't just gloss over the idea of talking about our finances when we're talking about generosity. It's just not fair. It's just not fair. And so I want to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is money. I want to think about it this way. The Bible says that you and I, as believers, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, you and I were bought with a price, and we no longer are ourselves, but now God owns us. You with me? If that's true, then the logical conclusion is this. Not only are we his, but everything we have is his. We're just stewards of what he's given us. But yet, here's what the enemy, I think, has done. It dealt almost a death blow to the church. Is he's worked very, very hard with great success to have each and every one of us compartmentalize our lives so that I'll let him own my Sunday. I'll let him own my Monday for missional community. I'll let him own my Friday so I can volunteer a little bit. But you know what? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday are mine. And it just doesn't stand to reason. It just doesn't stand to reason. And what I'm about to lay before you is undoubtedly going to annoy many of you. <laughs> this may confound some of you, but hopefully it will encourage many of you to the point where you, you trust God not only with your souls, but with everything that you have, that he is a good dad. He has your best interest at heart, but there is responsibility on our part. Remember, this is the word of God. I think we could spend five minutes just thinking about that. This is our manual. And we should look at it just like we would look at the manual of a car. That how Would we abuse or go against the manual of a car and expect it to run well? No. And so we have to think sober-mindedly about what this book contains so that we place our entire faith in him and stop compartmentalizing the things in our lives. It stunts the growth of the ministry for sure. The greatest attack of the enemy is the biblical mandate, the biblical design design for how his bride, the church, is to advance his kingdom on earth. The great commission is to go, but we have to give in order to go. Look at Romans 10, 14, and 15, where it says, How then will they, that's the harvest, those that are far from God, call on him, that's Jesus, in whom they had not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now that verse is not exclusively talking about pastors. You can't read before it or after and find anywhere where it's talking about the the ministry of a, a pastor. It's talking about you. You're the beautiful feet. You're the carriers of the gospel. 
R.C. Sproul, one of my heroes in the faith, says this, one of the greatest barriers to expanding the kingdom of Christ in the world is financial. Christian ministry depends upon Christian giving. That giving always and everywhere limits the work of the ministry. He goes on to say, you can't have a $1,000 ministry on a $100 budget. And then he unpacks the whole thing. You cannot have a $1,000 ministry on a $100 budget. So let's Let's talk about this. Now, you have to be careful. I have to be careful because we'll be here all day because the Bible is filled with encouragement and guidance on this. And so I just want to deal with the biggest opponent or response to tithing. And, And the biggest one, I think, is, well, the tithe is an Old Testament law. We're no longer under the Old Testament. Therefore, I don't have to tithe. Anybody ever heard that? The second one is similar, kind of flows from it, and that is I can't afford to tithe. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever said that? And so I don't want to talk about the second one, but I hope in talking about the first one, we'll deal with the second one. You with me? There's just not enough time. So let's talk about this. Is it, is it an Old Testament law to tithe? And if that's so, I am no longer under the law, and so therefore I don't have to give. What is the truth of that? The truth is that that position is not supported by anything in the New Testament, nor is it supported by anything that Jesus taught. In fact, Jesus taught that giving one-tenth of our income is the floor for Christianity. It's the floor, not the ceiling. I hear, I hear so many believers say, my goal is to tithe. No, that's the foundation. That's what you're supposed to be walking on. That's not some lofty goal. How did he say that, Jeff? Luke chapter four, uh, 11, Matthew chapter 23 says the same thing. Verse 42, he says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you what? A mint, everything that you have, every herb, and yet you neglect justice and the love of God. Now stop. Which one of those is more weightier? Tithing, mint, dill, and herbs, or neglecting justice and God? Which is the two? Neglecting justice and God or tithing? Which is the lesser of the two? Tithing herbs, right, is, is like, that's, that's a, that's, That's the smaller of the thing. The greater, weightier thing, Matthew tells us this, the weightier things is loving God and neglecting and not neglecting taking care of people. Look what he goes on to say. These you ought to have done. What are these? Tithing. You should be tithing, he says. But don't neglect the bigger things. Do you see that? Matthew 23 says it's like it's on a scale. Here's the tithe. That's nothing. That, you should be doing that. But here's, what, here's the weightier things. Here's the weightier things. Loving God. Don't neglect justice. This principle demonstrates throughout the New Testament. In fact, anytime you see an Old Testament practice or law talked about in the New Testament, you should look at it this way, that it's the, it's the basis, it's the, the minimum that we should be doing. The minimum that we should be doing. Let me prove it to you. Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm just going to blow through these. And he said this this phrase a a, a few different times. He said, you've heard it it was written. You've heard it was said. You've heard it was said of old. Let's look at how he addressed each and every one of these and and what the result is. Uh, Let's look at Matthew 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders 
will be liable to judgment. Now that's Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, is, is his new law that he's giving us weightier or less than the Old Testament? Is it easy not to murder? I think I can go through life without killing anybody. But can I go through life without getting mad and angry and have rage in my heart? That's a little harder. So what's Jesus saying in this new law? Oh, it's a lot harder than the Old Testament. Let's move on. Verse 27. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. He says, but I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her where? In his... It's easy to go, I'm not going to commit adultery. The whole different ballgame, friends, to say I'm not going to look at someone lustfully. Is he lightening the load or is he making it weightier? You decide. Verse 33. Again, you've heard it was said of the old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's Exodus 20, verse 16, <clears throat> excuse me, Deuteronomy 5, verse 20. But I say to you, don't take an oath. Just simply say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's an integrity issue. Just do what you're going to say. Just say what you're going to do. You don't have to swear. Verse 43, or 38 rather. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. If anyone sues you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If he forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Which one's harder? To have somebody poke me in the eye and I poke him back? That's easy. But to give him the other cheek, is that harder or easier? If that's the case, that whatever Jesus talked about in the Old Testament, now in the New, he, he makes it harder, then why when we talk about our finances would we say the Old Testament law says we have to give and now we're under this New Covenant so we don't have to give? It doesn't make sense. There's nothing logical about that. What he's pointing to for all of this is that we need God to transform our hearts and renew our minds. That's Ezekiel chapter 36, if you want to go read that. We need God to take our heart of stone out and give us a heart of flesh. So if the Old Testament law is not why we tithe, why do we tithe? Well, let's find out what the Old Testament says about tithing. Let me show you this little chart. The Old Testament law began when Moses got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai somewhere around 1440 B.C. Now there's four main texts in the law. Now he got those ten, but he went on to get 600 plus more. Now tithing is represented mostly in these three chapters. Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 26, also Deuteronomy 14. You can read in there. And here's basically what the tithe is supposed to be for. Support your pastors. Care for widows, orphans, and foreigners. Are those good things? Are they good things? No trick question, I promise. Those are good things. But that's the law. Do we have to do those because it's a law? Nope. 
Do we do them anyway? Abraham rescues Lot 600 years before that in 2084. Why in the world would I put that on there? If we're going to ask the question, what Old Testament foundation do we find that drives us, compels us to give a tenth of our income, we've got to look at this guy. What I want you to see is that the law came in 1400 B.C., but you have to go 600 years earlier than that to find the tithe. Abraham, who is the father of our faith, the New Testament says, records this in Genesis 14. There's this story where he goes and rescues his, lot, his nephew Lot. And he's on his way back, and he's got all these spoils. And in Genesis 14, we read this. His name is not Abraham yet. It's still Abram. God has yet to make a covenant with him, which is going to happen here in a chapter or two. But in Genesis 14, it says this. After his return from the defeat of that person, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, this unique Old Testament character that is on the scene and then he's gone. It's an Old Testament Jesus. And the New Testament will actually say this, that he is like, he is the image of the son of peace. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered the enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a 600 years before the law. Why is that a big deal? The next chapter, Genesis 15, God's going to make a covenant with Abraham. And he's going to tell Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go outside and I want you to look up into the heavens. And if you can number the stars, you'll be able to number your offspring. Go to the seashore, Abram. If you can count the number of sand, the little kernels of sand, you can count your offspring. So shall your number of offspring be. He's the father of the faith. Let's look at this. New Testament. Romans chapter 4. Now we could talk about this in a lot of different places. And so just for further reading, you can go to all of Romans 3 and 4, all of Hebrews 11 and 12, all of James 3, all of Galatians 3, all of 1 Peter 3. Just read chapter 3 of the entire New Testament and you'll cover this stuff. I just want you to read 2. Just see 2. Talking about Abraham. Why did he get him giving a tenth 600 years before the law? Why is that important to us? Romans chapter 4, verse 13 and 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Now, doesn't that seem a whole lot like Ephesians chapter 2? We're saved by grace through faith. That's why Abraham is so important. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. If we claim to be followers of Christ, if we claim to have faith in Jesus and have trusted him alone for our salvation, then we should be compelled in glad submission 
to give God what he teaches, and that is our all, including our money. Does that create tension for anybody? It's supposed to be the foundational part of the New Testament believer. He gave all, so we give our all. The most famous verse you see, for God so loved the world that he... So what are the results? Well, generosity begets generosity. He gave us all, so we give him our all. What what would be the, the result if we gave our all? I think the biggest one would be this. The church would become a powerful and relevant force for good in our community. We would set the standard for giving. Not the Red Cross. Not FEMA. Not the clinics. We would. We would set the standard. The good news would be, in, would be everywhere. They would look to the church to define generosity. Conversely, Lack of generosity forces us to the sidelines of irrelevancy. And when we're irrelevant, the church does really weird things. We, we build big, beautiful buildings, and we think that that's relevant. We create thousands of programs. But if you look at them, they're all focused on the members inside the four walls of the church. They're never in the community. Are we relevant? The answer is dependent upon our giving. Generosity drives relevancy. We cannot dream of changing our culture if we cannot solidify the most basic foundational truth for the New Testament believer, and that is to support the bride of Christ, the local church. So let's talk about Cain Bay. Call Joel and Charlie on the carpet for a minute. How are we doing? We're debt-free. Did you know that? Church of Cane Bay owes nobody nothing. I dare you to find another church just like that. They're, they're out there, but they're few and far between. We're debt-free. That's how well they're stewarding our money. But being debt-free, we've got to rent this place. We've got to turn on the lights. We've got to pay salaries. And let's talk about that a little bit. Our monthly budget is about $25,000. At the moment, we're $16,418 behind budget, almost a full month. We have 41 partner family members. That means 41 families have signed saying, I feel God calling me to join this covenant community of faith here at the Church of Cane Bay, and I want to give to that. I want to be generous to that. I want to support that. 41. If all 41 families were to tithe, we would basically meet our budget every single month. Now, we have about 70 to 75 family units attending every weekend. So we're almost double. Let's talk about if, if, if we just got a grasp on this foundational discipline of giving, what would we be able to do? Well, let me tell you a few things first before I do it. We have five families on staff, two full-time, three part-time. And then we have four additional families, so nine total. They're missional community leaders. So if I were to say to you, the leadership of the church are those staff members and missional community leaders, nine families make up nearly 25% of our overall giving. So they're doing their part. 
They're giving their all. If you do the numbers and you look at our mission and vision statement, if we were to get a hold of this basic tenet of truth, foundational walk as a believer, we'd be able to do a few things. We would be able to fully fund two church plants every single year. Let that rattle around in your head. We would plant two churches fully funded every single year. Our missional community budget would quadruple. We would never have to do advanced campaign ever again. Not one capital gifts campaign. We would never have to do it ever again. I mean, I could, I could read that and go to sleep every night with that comfort level. Never again would we have to ask for anything above the time. Some staff, we'd be able to hire three full-time people that take care of our, our, our worship. We'd be able to take care of our teens, take care of our connections and, and care. Part A of my message is done. Thank the Lord. I hate talking about money. Let me ask you a question, though. If you have your Bibles, finally, let's turn to them. What is generosity? Thank you, sir. I've got 10 minutes to finish. Dear Jesus, help me. Acts chapter 2. We're going to ask the question, what is generosity? Now, we could, we could pick a ton of different chapter, uh, scriptures in the New Testament, but I want to show you the very first demonstration, the very first visible example of what generosity looked like in the New Testament. So let's read this together. Actually, uh, well, I'll read it. You just read along with me. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says, and they, that's the new believers that responded to the gospel, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed <clears throat> excuse me, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Anybody see the full commitment in there? As any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. Does that sound like missional communities or what? They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. I want you to see the input in this picture. This is the bride that smote Jesus' heart. You see the, the community there. Do you, do you see the, the Church of Cain Bay's core value in there? That we're in it for the all. The every man, woman, child. Not some. Not one out of ten. All would see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And then join the covenant community of faith. Not Church of Cain Bay, but join a covenant community of faith. Not one part of our mission. Not one. We were at Eagle Harbor Boys Ranch. Finally, I got to go. And not one time did I mention the church of Cain Bay. Not once. But yet I met a young man named Michael. Ate some banana pudding with him. And shared the gospel with him sitting on a picnic table. Just a conversation. 
Friends, we've, we've got to support that. We've got to be a part of that. And if we compartmentalize our lives, we'll miss it. And we end up irrelevant. So how do we live generously? I, I want to give you four points because I'm a Baptist preacher. Based on this text in Acts 2, I want you to take these four things away. How do we live generously? One, we have to allow the gospel to transform our lives. Notice the very first thing that happened in that verse is they were added. Are you added? Have you responded to the gospel? Do you you believe that you were born dead in your trespasses and sin? Do you believe that there's absolutely nothing you can do for the condemnation that is on your life. It's not anything. There's nothing you can do. Have you responded to that? Do you understand that Jesus paid it all? So that you could then respond to that and then commit your whole lives to it and be transformed from the, the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious light. And then in that light, we give everything we can so that other people can have light. Have you allowed the gospel to transform your own life? We could spend a lot of time this morning talking about Abraham. 2 Corinthians 5, it says, we walk by faith, not by sight. I think that's our problems. We, we look at our checkbook and we walk by that, what's in our sight, instead of the faith that God calls us to. The righteous walk by faith. Number two, allow faith to shape our decisions. We see everything. You heard it. They had all things in common. They, everything, all, all, all. They were meeting all the needs. This has to shape our decisions. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which is where a lot of people point to why they don't tithe. Because it says God loves a cheerful giver. Everyone should give what they have decided in their hearts to give. Paul was not giving us permission to do less than that. He was saying the tithe is the basis, the foundation of it. And then you decide what you're going to do above and beyond that. Be a cheerful giver. So we need to ask God, God, make us cheerful givers. Let me just caveat this, probably the most confrontational thing I'll say all morning. If this scripture is the reason why you don't tithe, that's a heart issue, not a budget issue. If you say, I don't tithe because I'm not, I, don't, I haven't decided in my heart, I'm not a cheerful giver, that's a heart issue. That's not a checkbook issue. So call it for what it is. And seek the Lord there. Three. Allow the Holy Spirit to define contentment. This is huge. Look at 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be Content. I've heard people preach on this. This is the first time I've ever preached on tithing, by the way, and my, I'm shaking. Like, I haven't stopped my legs, I haven't stopped shaking. I heard a guy preach on this one time, and he went after people about the square footage of their home, and of course you can't tithe. You got 4,000 square feet, of course you can't tithe. They're driving them. Or... That's not it, friends. But what it is, is you go home and you make tough decisions to define. Your contentment. David Platt said it this way. You have to define your enough level. What's enough? 
Is four cars in the, in the parking lot enough, or is it too much? The square footage we have, is it enough, or is it too much? Why? It's not because God doesn't want you to have stuff. He doesn't want that stuff to limit you being a part of the covenant community of faith that takes the gospel of Jesus Christ into a five-mile radius around the church that you have chosen to attend. Totally different things. Does God want to bless you? Absolutely. Why? So you can give it back to him and go, God, you've blessed me with this. What do you want to do with it? We could talk about lilies in the field and birds of the air, but we don't have time. We've got to set a ceiling on our living so that we support the advancement of the kingdom. Fourth, we have to allow the family to help us. You see in this picture of the early church, they, they, they had all. Anybody that had a need, they went to the, the, the believers and they, they got their needs met. Undoubtedly, one of those needs would have been advice, counsel, right? so, discipleship. So do you need help? Listen, we, we've got families, three, four, five families. We, we've got families that say, I'll do it for free. I have some knowledge about financial peace, some budgets, and we've, all you have to do is just ask. All you have to do is ask. But you're supposed to come here, the, the, the covenant family of faith here, and ask, get help. So, talking to a friend of mine this week about just my nervousness over this whole message. And he, he, he shared with me a conversation that he had of one of the members of his church that said, hey man, I want to give, <clears throat> I just can't afford to. Said, wow, what did you say to that? Well, I wanted to say, dude, I've been to your house. <laughs> All 3,500 square feet of it. I can see why you can't give. Why do I bring that up now? When you come and ask for help, you've got to be willing to hear an answer that says, don't you have enough? And the American dream flies in the face of the proclamation of the gospel. Let me, it, does anybody disagree with me? We've got to allow the family to help us. We've got to, one way to do that, commit to a missional community. Right? If Acts 2 defines anything, it defines missional community. In that missional community, you're going to find somebody of the same sex to journey with on a weekly basis, soap through Scripture, dig through Scripture, and then get into accountability around whatever it is you're struggling with. If it's budget, get into accountability about it. Do something about it. To continue to live in a sinful way of lack is not a good excuse. I have no clue how to end, except to remind us of why we are here. And if you would indulge me to read this out loud with me again. We exist to give every man, woman, and child within our five-mile radius multiple opportunities to see here It is why we are here. It is plan A, and there is no plan B. We've got to get a handle on this issue because it's devastating the church. 
I'm not asking you for money. I'm asking you for so much more than that. The joy of seeing what you give transform thousands of lives. But at the moment, it's bound up in your back pocket. Our friends over in Mount Pleasant are building a massive new building. And his message to his congregation was, the good news is we've paid for it all. Every dime, $23 million they're spending on this new building. We've got every dime of it. And it's in your pocket. I unapologetically encourage you to seek the Lord in this. It is the mandate for the New Testament believer. Any excuse that we would give has got to be dealt with. Let me tell you a quick story. Do I have two minutes? I hate these kinds of stories because I'm always skeptical, but it's true. And so I'm going to tell you. About 1999, 2000, Pam and I were uh, new believers. And this issue just kept hounding me. I just wanted to experience what God had for me in the tithe. And so I'm sitting in my car. I'm about to go into the church. And I just, I just, I said this prayer. I don't know if it was heresy or what, but I just said, God, you're the God, you're a liar. And I need to find something else to do on Sundays. And so I'm just going to write this check. And I did. And I, I balanced my checkbook. And I can't remember the exact amount, but after I balanced it, I had less than five bucks in my checking account. And I knew there were some bills that were not going to get paid. Uh, you know, I had a plan for that, but I just knew that I was, I was putting myself in a financial bind by writing this check. But I just, I just wanted to settle it. I was sick of fighting with it. And so I did. I go in, drop the check. And here, here's the part of the story that I hate hearing people because I'm like, yeah, whatever. This is kind of the name it, claim it crowd, right? But this is actually what happened. Next day, you know what's coming. I wouldn't be telling it. I had applied for a scholarship from USAA. I was in graduate or undergraduate school, and it came in the mail, 500 bucks. And the letter said, Jeff, you don't owe us anything. You don't have to explain where you spent it. You don't have to give us a reason. You don't have to do receipts like so many grants do. Not one dime do you have to explain to us. It's yours. Isn't that cool? Now you could say, eh, luck. And that's your choice. Now, I'd love to walk off the stage and have you go, man, Jeff's a man of faith. Until we get to this year, almost 20 years later, for the first time in my adult life, I was fired. She just went, yeah, so did I. I didn't panic, but I did panic. I panicked in a very unpanicked looking way. I was like, I was saying all the right things. God's going to provide. God's going to take care of us. And he did. But a couple of months went by, and I just realized I'd stopped tithing. Like, it had been like three months. I'd been in such a survival mode that I'd just stopped doing it. And it, to this day, it's embarrassing to even say this, because you would think, as a pastor, I'd have this stuff down a little bit. And yet I'd walked away from the most basic truth of Christianity. 
without even thinking. I don't. I didn't even sit down and look at my budget and go, well, you know what? I'm going to have to put this off. I didn't even do that. And I'm just sitting there, and it just hits me. And I just went, what am I doing? Galatians, oh, wretched man that I am. I repented, and we're back on track. So I want to be a good boy? No, because I want God to, I want to partner with him. I want to see this happen. So we're, we're way late. And so, are we going to sing? <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. I'm a, I know, he's held up the stop sign like nine times so far. <laughs> so let me just, let me just uh, repent of that. Put this over here and let me pray for you to make a, a very unceremonious transition of the worship team. I would challenge you, close your eyes for a minute, and I I would challenge you to to hold your wallet in your hand, but I don't want to do that. It seems a bit trivial. But what I, I, consider your heart, friends. What is God saying? Forget what I said. What is He saying? What's the convictions that the Holy Spirit is leading, speaking to your heart right now? God, I, I partner with that. Not another word from me, but what are you saying to your family? I bless them with the realization that you bless them. I bless them with the responsibility of generosity. We trust you with every part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together as we continue and worship as God has been beyond generous.